Welcome to the Iron Keel Collection. Today's article is called Learn to Build a Mobile Phone Network in 22 Minutes. Subtitled, I'm putting my 22 years of telco experience to give you a quick 22-minute tour on how to build a mobile phone wireless network. I kid you not. Written by Sean Ellison on April the 22nd, 2020. Ever dreamed of having your very own mobile phone network, but having no idea how to build one? Maybe you're just curious and want to know in very simple terms how it's all done, or look no further. By following my simple guidelines through seven easy steps, you can build your very own mobile phone network and impress all your friends. In brief, here are the steps we're going to cover. The first step is expansion strategy. The second, network planning. Third, SAED, which stands for Site Acquisition Environment and Design, basically town planning and stuff like that. Four, build. Five, installation and commissioning. Six, integration and optimization. And lastly, number seven, the handover, the handover report. I'd like to sh- I'd like to show the picture which in the article it's, it's a very simple picture which shows the layout of a typical communications network, but I fear that it's going to be difficult to explain by voice. So I will skip straight to the expansion strategy, which is step one. Now, step one exp- expansion strategy. This is the one step which can make you feel a bit like a tyrant vying for world domination. For anyone that has played the board game Risk may fully appreciate how much fun this step is. Unfurled in front of you is a beautifully colour-coded map to represent capacity and coverage requirements. The idea, of course, is to fill in the missing gaps where capacity and coverage is most required. Being a Risk fan myself, I've been toying with the idea to create little miniature base station towers representing the armies and the different team colours representing your local opposition, like Optus, Vodafone, T-Mobile, etc. Conveniently, your local opposition probably already defined their own colours through their own branding, so no issues there. For convenience, it's good to know that there's an abundance of data on population density in many countries. This will help you enormously on dividing your map of domination into risk-like regions knowing where to strike. I must be careful with my words, otherwise the the nutters and tinfoil hats who claim that 5G creates harmful viruses will come out in full force. Where I am in Australia, SA3 clusters, a technical term, will do very well indeed. Wouldn't it be fun pushing little phone-mast armies with one of those long stick-like things on a table-sized map? Once you've set your expansion strategy in place, it's time to connect the dots. Let's go to step two, network planning. This is the step you can pretend to be in one of those high-tech CSI cybercrime detective-type dramas. 
yeah, you know, the the ones where they have that clear acrylic monitor screen where all these fancy intricate lines could be drawn together like a spider's web, captioned with cool abbreviations representing radio frequencies and other technical jargon like, like parabolic antenna A41.502 CL, stuff like that. Or more simply, it's like being a child again and playing Connect the Dots. In the previous step, you've already set up your strategy as to how many towers you need to give you the coverage and capacity to outwit your competitors. Or more accurately, get more people interested in using your network. Well, this step involves being all high-tech and connecting your towers, or nodes if you prefer, together with nice neat lines. Well, let's call those nice neat lines backhole and or transmission vectors to make it all technical-like. And they all go back to a, a switch. After all, there's no point in building a mobile phone tower if you can't get data to and from it, is there? The switch, by the way, is essentially one of those big warehouse-type buildings with a lot of equipment in it, which has the purpose of sending data to other switches to send the data to another mobile phone tower, or simply to your good old-fashioned telephone system, the PSTN, Public Switch Telephone Network. There's a lot of stuff that happens here, but that's for another story. And that will be cool because it will involve dealing with the NOC, the NOC, the Network Operations Center, which does its best to emulate what it feels like to be part of a scene in a Hollywood movie depicting NORAD or NASA control. That's right. At the NOC, You've got all those fancy monitors strewn over a big wall with engineers and supervisors behind computers sitting in terraced rows of seating, watching it all intently looking for any trace of trouble. During the quiet times, those people in the knock are more likely watching the footy on one of the monitors somewhere in the lower corner of the, of the big wall. Anyway, back to the neat lines. You can have different color lines if you like. Why not have one color to represent a radio transmission? You might have noticed that some phone towers have those little round circular dishes usually situated below the stick-like panel antennas on top. These are microwave dishes which point directly to another dish on another tower. This provides a way to get the data back to another tower on its way to the switch. You could represent another color to represent your fiber links. In reality, they are, of course, not straight, but you knew that already, didn't you? You might have to lay a new fiber run or perhaps use an existing stretch of dark fiber. Basically, a really awesome term for unused fiber which you can lease. Back in the slow days of 2G and before extensive fiber rollouts, we had to be content with using slow and expensive 2 megabyte or 2 megabit leased lines that you can rent out from your telephone provider. Okay, so you've built your spider's web connecting your mobile phone towers to the network, but they haven't been positioned yet because we've yet to find a suitable place for them. It's time to go to step three, S-A-E-D. For me, this is the area which I have had the most experience with. 
I apologize in advance because this is a rather long step. SAED, Site Acquisition, Environment and Design, is a, is a fancy way of saying property, town planning and design. Exactly what you'd do if you built your own house. Technically speaking, radio planning is not part of the SAED process. However, because the radio planner is an integral part of the planning and design of the site, and often attend scoping visits, I have included radio planning in this section. I may be biased in saying this, but I consider SAED to be the most complex step of all. It involves the community, just for starters. It takes the longest to do, it's expensive and requires the skills of many disciplines of which most of those are taken up with personnel who'd rather work on more exotic projects such as bridges, tall buildings and football stadia, only to find themselves doing template pieces of work driven largely from Excel spreadsheets. From a database guru point of view, Designing systems to track SAED, of which I have designed a few myself, is very challenging indeed. I will need to subdivide the section SAED into seven subsections. 1. The desktop studies. 2. The caravan. 3. The radio planner. 4. The property person. 5. The town planner. 6. The Designer 7. The Site Selection Report Let's start with desktop studies. SAED begins when you start looking for site locations or candidates for your proposed tower or installation. As it's relatively inexpensive, much of the initial groundwork can be covered by doing as much of your homework as you can. This is where the radio planners, designers, property agents, and town planners spend a lot of time playing around with Google Maps and council zoning maps, making lots of calls to landlords looking for space, checking out population clusters and topographical maps for best coverage. All that sort of stuff. Very important step for predefining candidates and planning for the fun part. The caravan. The caravan. We need to talk about caravans, or scoping visits, because this applies to four very important people traveling together, looking for suitable locations to identify candidates for our base station site, or what most of the public just call the mobile phone tower. Based on most of the caravans or site visits that I've taken part in, this usually consists of four or sometimes five people meeting up at various locations searching for these candidates. The radio planner, the designer, the town planner, and the acquisition agent, or simply the property guru. On long extended trips, this usually involves being cooped up in a car going from place to place looking for suitable places to build a tower or use an existing structure to put our bits and bobs on. 
trips involving four-wheel driving in remote locations because no doubt four-wheel driving is quite invigorating, hotel stays in tropical resort towns or just an excuse to be out of the office will no doubt attract a fifth person, the client project manager, if he or she is allowed to do so. Trust me, a week's worth of scoping visits around Darwin during the dry season is actually a lot of fun. To be honest, I would have never experienced so much Australian travel if I never took part in these visits. Yes, the occasional shithole for accommodation can turn up from time to time, but it's an adventure all the same. Depending on how much difficulty there is in identifying a suitable location... There could be many candidates, sometimes along with a great deal of frustration from not finding a good one. Many use the convention of using the alphabet to signify the candidate. For example, candidate A and candidate B being the first two candidates. There was a particularly nasty one I was involved with in Milner, which is a suburb in Darwin, Australia, for Optus where I thought we would exhaust every letter of the alphabet. During a caravan, each candidate is visited. The property person knocks on the door and does all the talking. The town planner may make a little side trip, taking pictures from afar or take note of certain surrounding features. The designer is usually the one scurrying away, taking dimensions and taking pictures, and the radio planner sits comfortably in the car with his laptop. I'm being jokingly facetious here. The radio planner keeps one step ahead as he has the best knowledge of surrounding installations along with the desired results. If there is a fifth person, it is usually the project manager working for the client. That person could either be a real help or a real hindrance to the caravan. However, with increased cost-cutting, client project managers and town planners are often omitted from attending caravans. At the end of the caravan trip, everyone will have collected a dossier of information for all the candidates they visited. All this info will be collated and discussed back in the office with the hope of making a choice which candidate to proceed with, often known as the prime candidate. Should this fail, a backup candidate will be used instead. So what do our four people do? Let's start with the radio planner. What does he do? Well, the closest most people come to radio planning is where to situate their Wi-Fi antennas at home. For, for those who may have Wi-Fi in apartment units with loads of others also using Wi-Fi, may have experienced the problem of interference from everyone else's. Or these days... Those off-the-shelf units you buy pretty much do all the configuration work for you automatically. But some of you might have remembered having to fiddle with the channels, making sure you space them out at least three apart. Mobile phone radio planning is quite a bit more complex, and we need to ensure that our mobile phone towers are transmitting radio to all our mobile phones in the best way possible. You might look at a really simple tower configuration with three of those vertical rectangle antennas. Each one is called a panel antenna, and they blast out the signal required to reach your mobile phone. Each one is designed to radiate outward in a wide arc, 
to get the most coverage, but they can be altered to be made narrower or wider. They can be tilted, both electronically and mechanically, as well to point down to where the signal is needed. Each panel antenna emits a signal to cover a sector, what is known as a cell. Although the more advanced antennas can do a heck of a lot more, being able to transmit multiple cells across a range of different technologies. They have got significantly more advanced than they were when I first started out in telcos. Now let me tell you a little something about radio planners. The radio planner, often the quietest one in the car, as he's always got his laptop open, will scan the ground for the best place to put a sight. Sod's Law will suggest that this will be in the most difficult place possible for the rest of the crew in the car. The prominent brow of a hill with no power available, or atop of a heritage-listed building, on top of water tanks, I guarantee that it won't be a lovely bit of flat ground with power nearby. In my experience, the radio planner can be, and I'm sorry to be crude here, a bit of a pain in the arse. He or she doesn't want to be, but it's in their nature to get the best best possible coverage. Having been a designer, I've had radio planners ask me this. Hey, what about making a grid thingy to put our panel antennas on and putting it right over that electrical substation over there? You, You engineers can do that, surely, can't you? I remember this occasion very well whilst working on the BT Cellnet project many years ago in London. The remaining three of us shriveled up as we stood in front of this electricity substation, humming ominously with rather dangerous-looking columns of insulator plates separating us from death by electrocution, while the radio planner looked on with hopeful eyes. Oh, hopeful eyes not for us to die, but hopeful eyes for us to find a place for the panel antennas, of course. Radio planners are difficult to satisfy, and frankly, they just don't get out enough. They want the best possible coverage, and if it means having to resort to sticking tens of dozens of panel antennas on a very large tower, so be it. Ugliness is not in the vocabulary of a radio engineer. Thankfully, we have checks and balances in terms of what the community, what the community will accept, and government legislation to prevent the proliferation of mobile phone towers that look like a dog's breakfast, or those that exceed power output guidelines through such bodies like ICNERP, which is a very long acronym, the International Commission on Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection. We have our town planners to help us out on many of these issues. On caravan visits, we usually prefer our radio planners to be out of earshot from potential landlords, as they're likely to scare them away with such words like radiation, absorption, phenol curves, saturation, stuff like that. Okay, let's go to the property person, or what is known as the acquisition agent. So what does an acquisition do? The acquisition agent or the property person is basically the realtor who hunts around looking for interested landlords 
who'd be happy to give you a little space for your tower in return for a healthy rent for the next 20 or so years. It's a bit like getting your commercial estate agent to find you a suitable warehouse for your new business. Being a property person means making endless cold calls, evading rabid dogs, placating dangerously unbalanced landlords, being able to say the right things. For example, rather than say radiation, say transmission instead. And to negotiate a passage that will make a potential landlord and a client happy. And this is, and this is all happening while the rest of the caravan crew are safely sat in the air-conditioned car. On one occasion, we met up with a landlord around the Lake Bennett area near Darwin, who detested Telstra so much that every time Telstra came to do a little bit of maintenance on their tower, which is on his land, they came unannounced by helicopter. Judging by what I saw when I was up there, the anger was rather pronounced when I saw bullet holes in a Telstra sign with a cross through it on the landlord's gate. It was quite funny to see, actually. So only when the potential landlord looks friendly enough, much like when a stranger introduces their ferocious dog to you, the property person ushers everyone out to do their little bit while keeping the radio person well away if he decides to get out of the car at all. So I just could resist saying that. The property person tends to be the frontline soldier of the caravan armed with the power to suppress a confrontation or two. I once had a scare when I did a survey on top of a block on top of a block of flats in East London. When this incredibly vicious woman came storming out at me from the roof stairwell door, shouting to me that I was responsible for three headed people and that I had better leave right now. I backed down quietly put my tools away, aborted the, aborted the mission, and updated the site hazard form to be mindful of demon-possessed ladies on top of rooftops. Let's go to the town planner. What does a town, what does a town planner do? Well, if there's anyone who knows a lot about the laws and codes of a land, it is the town planner. For those into real estate, this is the bit that defines what he can or cannot do with respect to building on a certain piece of land. All land is divided into zones of different classifications. For example, residential, commercial, industrial, recreation, and so on. All downloadable from government websites in the guise of attractive color-coded maps. Moreover, there are a, host, a whole host of other potential factors that the town planner must consider, depending on which council or local authority is involved. The town planner needs to have a good eye as well. He is the antithesis of the radio planner. Beauty is everything. Simplicity is awesome. The town planner knows all too well that an innocuous-looking slimline monopole with three panel antennas is going to have a little more chance of being accepted into the community than the radio planner's dream of an angry-looking Eiffel Tower laden with dozens of panel antennas. The town planner may have a, a little drive away from those 
scurrying around on site during the site visit to snap a few pictures from afar whilst taking in the fresh air. These pictures may be used to make cool-looking before and after photos with a nice-looking tower to show to the council. These are known as photo montages. Although restrictions are becoming more commonplace on drone use, town planners find these to be a real aid in taking these sort of photos. Unfortunately for the town planner, life is often not easy. Like the property person, the town planner may have to deal with the whole of the community, some of which may be up in arms in disgust of having a tower overlooking their backyards. Hence the term NIMBY, meaning not in my backyard. The town planner has the unenviable task to submit countless council forms and may have to attend Development Application Panel, DAP, Development Assessment Commission, DAC, or even Indigenous Groups Meetings. All great stuff. The town, <clears throat> a town planner must ensure that the initial planning drawing submitted by the designer is absolutely correct. Otherwise, the whole palaver of restarting the whole process could happen again. For example, showing the antenna to be a fraction of a metre higher than what it's supposed to be could make an overzealous council planner jump up with glee, insisting for a resubmission with additional fees. Again, from experience, the town planner is often the quietest and most reserved in a caravan. However, town planners, at least at least those with an interest in telcos, often do rather uh, do pretty well climbing up the ladders of telco management. I don't know why. Probably because of their knowledge of all the codes in detail. Okay, let's talk about the uh, the designer. So I was a designer for the best part of of 10 to 15 years, or more precisely, a structural designer. They are the jack-of-all-trades in telco because they broadly have to understand a little bit of everything in telcos. Designers are often quite content walking around with a tape measure in hand, doing some sketches, and then mucking around in AutoCAD, taking pride and satisfaction in their drawings. I can only speak from experience here, but in every caravan, at least the ones I hosted, it is the designer who acts as the coordinator. The designer arranges the trips, collates all the information, liaises with the client, and ultimately prepares the final site selection report. The designer never has enough hands. Taking photographs, measuring up with tape measures and reel tapes, laser measures, and writing notes, taking coordinates, and so on, whilst listening to everybody in the group discuss where they want the site to be located. Everybody looks a little sorry for you running around with the tape measure, so it is of no surprise that one of them may show a little sympathy by offering to hold the tape for you while you're measuring. The designer usually trained as a, as, a, as a structural civil engineer, will be the one everyone will ask if it's possible to build a site in the most impossible of places. The designer, much like the town planner, seeks simplicity. 
measuring up for a standard tower on a solid, flat piece of ground with convenient access to three-phase power is Nirvana. Designing a custom installation in which you need to install panel antennas on a live radio tower, or worse, a high-voltage electricity pylon with no space at all to build a standard shelter, which is basically an air-conditioned porter cabin type structure to put up all your gear, is hell. The designer needs to possess a very good knowledge of structural and rigging design, a reasonable knowledge of electrical design, and a lot of common sense. Rigging is all the stuff that goes on the tower or existing structure. Feeder cables, fiber cables, waveguides, panel antennas, amplifiers, remote electronic tilt boxes, microwave dishes, and all the plumbing that goes into the shelter, which connects to the BTS, the base transceiver station, and other bits and pieces in the shelter. Moreover, the designer needs to have a sound knowledge as to what bits and pieces need to be catered for in the shelter. Such items include air conditioning, power supplies, rack space, radio kit, switches, routers, digitizers, DC converters, and many other components. It's good and well if you, if you can get a standard shelter pre-ordered with all the stuff in it, but many designers dread designing for in-situ spaces or rooms where all the stuff needs to be custom-defined. Electrical design is usually carried out by electrical engineers back at the office or commissioned out to the power authority. The designer on site need only take the basic details back for the electrical designer. For remote and rural sites, microwave dishes to connect from tower to tower are often used whereby the designer coordinates a special crew of people to take measurements to ensure that proposed microwave dishes can be installed correctly to transmit to each other without obstruction. This is called the line of sight exercise. Traditionally, this involves having lots of lots of fun with cherry pickers and cranes with specialists taking high definition photos from one tower to another. The use of LiDAR and drones has made this task much easier, especially in situations where getting access to a large cherry picker or crane is nigh on impossible in remote or difficult to access locations. We once had to be creative when a cherry picker wasn't available by hiring a crane and dangling people in a box, holding cameras. Didn't work very well because due to the winds, the box kept moving from side to side, but it was better than nothing. Like the town planner, his job is to ensure that the planning drawings are spot on, the designer must ensure there's enough information to take away after the caravan, especially for remote sites. It is extremely embarrassing to be asked to design for a candidate in which you don't have that critical measurement. Let's talk about the bonus, the design visit. Aha, I snuck this one, didn't I? The design visit. Gone are the days where each tranche of new sites was given two rounds of visits by default, one being the caravan of scoping visit and the other the design visit. It's just too expensive, especially for rural Australia. 
However, there may be the odd occasion or two that it is necessary to send a designer to take some detailed measurements in order for the site to be designed. This usually occurs when scoping visits are rushed, and the designer hasn't the time to document everything needed to design every candidate visited. Those who take the path of designing a site by taking shortcuts without taking proper measurements do so at their peril. I remember checking up on a proposed Optus site just about to be built on a rugby ground in Ludmilla Daran. The survey guys pegged out the site as to the coordinates in the drawing. Unbelievably, the guys pegged out the site in the bottom of a dry creek bed, at least 30 metres away from the proposed location. You would think that those who pegged out the site just might have questioned this, but, but no. After all, we are talking about the Northern Territories. The moral of the story is don't design based on Google Maps. And for heaven's sake, at least use the right geodetic datum. Design visits that entail flying someone, someone up to exotic and remote destinations can be nothing short of being a little bit of a mini-holiday with a little work thrown in. Designers love them as they are not being pressurised by the rest of the caravan to get the job done and plenty of time to do it in. The best experience I had was when I was asked to measure up some stuff in a Telstra exchange in Jabiru, which is right in the heart of Kakadu National Park. I was given the keys to a car, had all day to drive to Jabiru, do a half hour's bit of measuring up inside the exchange, and amble over to the luxurious crocodile-shaped hotel, which is the only hotel there, have a nice dinner and a sleep. The next day I had to drive to Catherine to do something similar at a Telstra site in Tyndall Base. Because the drive was several hours long, I had time to have a swim in Upper Edith Falls on the way. Tourists pay huge sums of money to vacation at the top end, and I was getting it for free. It's not without its downsides, though, if working outside. Working in high heat and high humidity can be frustrating. Your camera steams up, you sweat like a pig. You make as much noise as possible while traipsing through the grasses, hoping the snakes will run away. And for those times, I worked in the UK in winter on top of towers, and oddly enough, fire station drill towers, the howling cold wind that bites into your hand and face, making it impossible to write anything down. One, of course, needs to be wary of places you shouldn't be near to. For example, crocodile-infested rivers and such places like toxic waste dumps. Working indoors, one must be a little careful of what they touch in a switch site or an exchange. I recall a near miss of a major embarrassing incident whilst working at a very large switch T-Mobile switch site in Radlett in the UK. Upon exiting one of the main rooms, lined up with BTSs and BSCs and MSCs, all the really big monstrous machines that keep a mobile network going, I nearly pressed the emergency stop button instead of the door open door button. They were, they were next to each other. Such an incident would have blacked out a quarter of the T-Mobile network in the London area at the time. It certainly would have blackened any chance of getting a promotion. Now we're going to get to the site selection report bit. After having all the fun doing those caravan and site, site design visits, 
it's time to get serious and put it all into a, into a report. The designer or the project manager will prepare a detailed site selection report or candidate ranking report or whatever you want to call it, and then submit it to the client for review. I've spent many a weekend trying to catch up with putting these things together. I guess it's the penance for all the great time being away on those adventurous caravans. It's highly repetitive and involves collating drawings, entering mind-numbingly dull data into clients' databases, drafting health and safety plans, merging all the reports together created by the town planner and the property guys, and collecting other important artifacts to form the final recommendation. Because frankly, this is what is first going to be read by the client. Possibly the only thing to be read. Some client project managers are bewilderingly quick to criticize or nitpick at the least important item in the design pack. On one occasion, whilst working on a concealed site or a stealth site on top of a leisure facility in Glenelg, South Australia, the client commented on the type of lock I was using, but failed to take note of the paint colour I specified on the drawing of the surrounding rooftop shelter to blend in with the council's requirements. The client project manager ordered the wrong paint. Many of us cheered when he reached retirement, but I still had a lot of respect for him as an engineer. Once all the reports have been submitted to the client, with any success, the designer's recommendation will be honoured and the site will proceed to the build phase. And here endeth the very lengthy and complex SAED part of our guide. You might have realised by now that uh, this is certainly more than 22 minutes long, but uh, I think for fast readers it probably does come up to about 22 minutes. But anyway, we are at step four, the build bit. The build part is arguably the most exciting part of the whole process. All the construction vehicles come roaring through with bits of tower to assemble. Cranes, bulldozers, excavators, steelwork being delivered, drums of fibre and coaxial cable being rolled out. And this is the thing. It It often takes very little time to put it all together, sometimes in a couple of days. It can take weeks and weeks and even months, sometimes years, to get something sorted out in the previous SAED step, with nothing to show for it in terms of anything being done on site. From a process point of view, build is largely straightforward, and if I put my database systems hat on, the easiest part of the system to design for. A few things happen before any construction vehicle arrives on site and build commences. For starters, Once the prime candidate from the previous step is given the go-ahead, the designer or project manager must oversee the detailed design of the site, get all the planning approvals and permits done, and the executed leases with the landlords and put them into a nice little bundle called the build pack, a thick tome of documentation needed to physically build the site. Build engineers are then sent out to the proposed site to measure out again, and to check that the detailed design will actually work. I did some of these while on an Optus project in Sydney, and let me me tell you, many of those detailed designs did not work. 
certainly not without a lot of modification. This is a common problem when SAED work is done and then passed over to a different outfit to do the build. Designers who pass their work over to a build supplier usually, ante usually anticipate the occasional call coming in from the build contractor. Much like a trader doing a short and getting the dreaded margin call. Expected questions may include the following. Hey, these connections are not strong enough for these beams. Hey, we can't do hot work here. Can't you see? Can't you design using nuts and bolts instead? Hey, where's the plinth waterproofing detail? And the king of them all. <laughs> There's no underlying support there, Gov. What shall we do? As mentioned earlier, during the late 90s, I worked as a designer project manager on the BT Cellnet 2G rollout in the London area. The role was markedly different than what is normally in telcos today. The designer not only completed the SAED portion, but also managed the build contractors, conducted pre-start meetings, attended supervisory duties doing build, attending practical completion visits and providing the handover packs. It was good experience and provided, and provided the designer with great satisfaction to really see the site being built there and then. On many occasions, I would ruck up in the early hours or in the middle of a middle of a night on site, and all being well, would not have any questions asked of me by the foreman while enjoying a cup of tea, watching my design being transformed into reality. On attending the practical completion visit, you can see the fruits of your success, or some of your some of your uh, your screw ups if you didn't design properly. Some companies try to save money and take shortcuts by building without appropriate project manager supervision. One such example I remember is for a large, rather large monopole site I designed to be located within a caravan park in Howard Springs in Northern Territory. It was owned by a particularly fussy landlord who hated mess and did not want anything out of place. And quite rightly so. Anyway, the builders decided to deviate from the drawings and to trench right through the middle of the park instead of following the boundary. Needless to say, the owner of the caravan park was hopping mad and furious. The Perth-based builder thought that they could get away with not sending the project manager to save a few dollars and travel. Turned out, they had to pay significantly more to tidy up the mistake. Okay, we're on to step five, installation and commissioning. Well, now that we've got a new site that has just been built, you'd be disappointed to know that it's not yet ready to be used. The antennas, feeder cables, microwave dishes, if needed, and the shelter might all be there, but there's no equipment inside the shelter. All the wizardry happens inside the shelter. Pallets carrying BTS kit with transceiver modules, boxes containing fiber switches, power supplies, routers, serializers, RET controllers, and many other bits of incredibly expensive electronics have to be installed and connected together by experienced field technicians who have who have brains that, that can absorb entire technical manuals 
and yet able to impress you by showing you the latest RF burn, a radio frequency burn they got while handling the end of a live coaxial feeder cable. The INC, or the Installation and Commissioning Field Technician, is, pro- is possibly one of the most knowledgeable and geeky people you will come across in telcos. They are very nerdy, having access to the entire vocabulary of telco-specific acronyms that most telco personnel are not even aware of. The only nerdier ones are those who work in the RAN, or the Radio Access Networks Department. And having worked with them back in the early 2000s on microcells, I am proud to say that I have fully assembled and disassembled an Ericsson RBS2302, a 2G microcell BTS from scratch. When 3G and 4G came along, yet more acronyms came into existence, leading me to believe that what 5G really means is that we now have five times more acronyms than we had during the days of the old analog mobile networks. After installing all this kit, it needs to be connected to the network, either through the fiber backbone or transmission via the microwave dish. Ethernet cables, coaxial feeders, single-mode fiber cables, elliptical waveguides, and not to mention all the proprietary custom cables which the manufacturers of the kit force you to use, turn what was once a nice neat layout inside the shelter into a veritable rat's nest of wires which the field technician attempts to neatly put into place. Speaking of custom cables, I remember having to connect multiple Nortel E-cells which is like another 2G microsol BTS, together using their so-called special expansion cable. That one cable costed as much as a new car. Small wonder Bortel went out of business. But once we test that our site is connected to the network, it's time to do a little polishing. Which leads me on to step six, integration and optimization. I nearly landed up doing my career in this area back in 2001, but ended up going down the SAED route instead. In a nutshell, integrating your site means identifying your newly connected site and making it a part of your network. In simple terms, it's kind of like connecting a new computer in the office and making it a part of your domain. Once integrated, It is now part of your network and should be working properly, being able to take in mobile traffic from its vicinity. However, don't forget to integrate the site, because I I recollect one story of a site that was newly newly commissioned by T-Mobile in the UK, and somehow or another was never integrated. It seemed to be forgotten for some time, only for someone to flag the issue of, Hey, guess what, guys? There's a new site in that valley over yonder that we've never switched on. But is your new site really working properly? How is it coping with all the other adjacent cell sites around it? Can I walk with my phone across to another cell site, which is known as handing over, and still maintain a conversation? If you haven't done your optimization, then it's unlikely you'll get a smooth running network. This is where the boffins gaze at computers with big screens filled with lots of colourful maps, crisscrossed with lots of lines and 
littered with geometric shapes, tweaking the network to ensure that the network is working at its most efficient capacity with seamless handover between cells. After optimizing the network, the whole cycle begins again as to what additional capacity and coverage is required, prompting us to revisit step one again. I remember when existing 2G optimization took a backseat during the initial 3G strategy and, in, and ensuing rollouts in the UK, whilst working at T-Mobile during the early 2000s. I frequently made journeys from London to Bristol on one of the world's busiest motorways, the M4. Apart from the thousands of road cones which perpetually, perpetually lined the motorway, believe me, at no time will you ever experience a road cone-free road. I get cut off in four distinct places on the phone on the motorway every single time, not for lack of coverage, but because of handover issues between the cells. I don't know much of the detail of how optimization works, but it's certainly important. Step 7. Handover packs. This I'm afraid, is the soul-destroying step of building a network and not at all interesting or satisfying. The handover pack is a very thick wad, electronic of course, of documentation which goes straight back to the client. It includes anything and everything about the site you've just built. It is so utterly boring, repetitive and unengaging that I've witnessed grown men turn to zombies many of them ending up falling asleep on the keyboards for lack of stimulation. As if it's easy to provide most clients with your electronic bundle of handover documentation, think again. Some clients will seemingly make it as difficult as possible for you to upload your handover documentation. I've known colleagues who took a whole day to upload one handover pack on a recent Optus, Optus project. Whether it was because they weren't good at it or simply they already turned into a zombie is open for comment. Unfortunately, handover packs are a fact of life. And despite being immersed in a vast lake of telco data, perhaps never to be read again, the site isn't complete without it. Anyway, it's about the end of the session. We've gone a lot more than the 22 minutes. So I had a bit of fun writing that article, being a prisoner of telco from 1997 to 2018 and being engaged in so many aspects of building a mobile wireless network. Well, thanks for listening. If you got this far on the podcast, take care. See you all. Bye.